You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week. This is the last week we'll be broadcasting outside the uh, studio. Uh, currently... Uh, we still have stage four restrictions in Melbourne, so I'm broadcasting outside the studios, Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne. So this is a four-way conversation. I talk to 3CR in Melbourne. They talk to the Community Radio Network. And the Community Radio Network, through your local community radio station, talks to you. So obviously there may be some technical issues and the quality may not be up to the usual standard, uh, but next week I'll be back in the studio and hopefully most of those uh, problems will be ironed out and this time we'll be able to continue broadcasting over the next coming months by the studio with uh, a better quality. Trying to what Anarchy is all about? No, it's not about the quality of the broadcast. I'm talking about the uh, sound quality, not the intellectual quality. That's another matter. But uh, an Anarchy Society is one which is based on overcoming inequalities in power and wealth. It's inequalities in power and wealth which give people the ability or small groups of people or individuals the ability to uh, impose their will on uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, as we've seen over the last uh, few months here in Australia and as we see continually around the world. So, no, there's a lot of issues floating around currently. I think uh, the first issue I'd like to uh, talk about, because it's uh, a local issue, is the Jabba uh, Warung uh, dispute up near Stall, where the uh, people who've been camping there for uh, protesting there for two years have been the camps been dispersed by Victoria Police. And uh, what what is interesting is not that uh, there's the usual obstruction charges, but that most of the charges that have been laid are infringement notice regarding COVID-19. So what we are seeing, what we've seen consistently over the last few months is the Victoria Police extending their powers over and over again and using COVID-19 legislation to uh, destroy, disrupt uh, protests of any kind. And what was even more offensive on Monday was the fact that uh, the legal observers are also arrested. I mean, Victoria Police currently thinks they can do what they like. The Victoria Premier has said if they need more powers, he's more than happy to uh, give them those powers. And as we've seen over the last few months, the uh, Victorian Parliament, courtesy of the uh, Legislative Council, has been able to extend the state of emergency for another six months. Instead of reviewing it every uh, four weeks, 
we now have to put up another five months of this and at any time it can be extended. So all those activists who felt that the uh, the, the uh, laws are just aimed at the Tin Hat Brigade, those people who deny that uh, COVID-19 exists or it's some type of hoax or some type of, uh, you know, uh, you know, conspiracy. The fact is that these laws are used against anybody and everybody who is willing to protest. So just remember that, that when governments extend their powers, it's, uh, those powers can be used in uh, many ways that uh, people may not have foreseen in the first instance, and this will be an exceptionally important issue as we plug on over the next uh, few months. Now, just uh, in case you think that we're just uh, virtual Zoom people, well, we're not. The Francesco Fantine Memorial will go ahead this year. Uh, usually we get less than 10 people, so I don't think we have any problems with the numbers because the current numbers are 10. The restrictions regarding travel to the rest of Victoria from Metropolitan Melbourne are raised on the 8th of uh, November. So we'll be having the ceremony at 11am uh, on the 15th of November at uh, the Murchison Cemetery to honour Francesco Fantine, the 78th anniversary of his murder on the 16th of November 1942. Francesco Fantine was an anarchist who fled to Australia in 1924 from uh, fascist uh, oppression, the Mussolini government. He fought against the growing fascist tide in Australia for uh, over 16 years, and in uh, over 20 years, and in 1942, he was arrested as an enemy alien and is interned with 350 fascist Italian fascists who were interned at Camp Loveday in South Australia, and obviously he survived for about seven months and then was eventually uh, bludgeoned to death by these people because he refused to give the uh, fascist salute in the uh, internment camp. So he's buried at Murchison with uh, other Italians who died in internment camps uh, around Australia, and uh, usually every year for the last decade or so we've been paying our respects this year, obviously, the numbers will be small. We're limited to 10. So uh, you are invited to come 11am the 15th of November. Now, regarding Eureka, we will be having Eureka celebrations. Obviously, the uh, restrictions, uh, some restrictions have been lifted. The numbers, it's difficult to ascertain at this particular point in time. So we haven't made any specific decisions apart from the fact that we will be holding a ceremony at the old Ballarat Cemetery at the graves of the Eureka Diggers, many of the Eureka Diggers who were killed on the 3rd of December at midday. Now, we may do some other activities depending on restrictions. We don't actually want to alienate people because of this health, health issues. So we will work within the current legislation. So how many activities we have on the day will to a significant degree be determined by that, the number of people that will be able to attend. But we will be doing something live, not just uh, the usual Zoom garbage that uh, seems to have uh, attracted so many people over the last six months or so. Now, let's talk about constitutional mayhem. I know you're sick of this constitutional stuff, but what is a constitution? Theoretically, a constitution is a mechanism which regulates the behaviour of the citizens in a particular sovereign nation-state. And whether you know it or not, Australia does have a constitution. It's one of the weakest constitutions in the world, possibly the weakest in the so-called freedom and the free world. 
Uh, but I'm interested in looking at it in three ways because there are things that have been happening which have highlighted how insignificant the Constitution is. Now, you've all heard me talk about the fact there's no, there's no protection for the individual against the arbitrary exercise of state power in this country. And if what, what one thing COVID-19 has taught us is how right that is, how governments can um, basically pass in any legislation they like at the state level or the federal level, as long as they've got a majority in both houses of parliament and obviously uh, just a majority in the uh, lower house in Queensland. So we've seen that. There's no constitutional protection for freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and the list goes on and on. And if you think there is, you need to reread the Constitution. Now, more importantly, I'm interested in the judicial aspects of the constitutional arrangement because, you know, you've all heard about the uh, new appointment of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, but uh, I don't know how many of you have heard the fact that the Morrison government will be appointing two new High Court judges in the next few weeks. That's right. There are seven High Court judges. Uh, they retire at the age of 70 in this country. They're not appointed for life, as they are in the United States of America. And two positions become vacant, or are now vacant. And they will be filled by the Morrison government. Now, the beauty about judicial appointments in this country, whether it's the um, Fair Work Commission, the uh, Federal Circuit Court, uh, the High Court, uh, and, and various other uh, quasi-legal uh, institutions in this country, these people are appointed by the government of the day. So the government of the day can have a profound impact on the way the Constitution is interpreted for decades. And normally what we see in these situations, the government of the day appoints somebody who reflects their ideological position. So they may be turfed out of office in two years' time, but those High Court judges continue to make decisions which have a significant impact on how we live in this country. Not just at the High Court level, but also at the federal level. Now, obviously, state attorney generals appoint judges at the state level, but the federal government has quite an extensive amount of power, and this is one of the perks of office. So we have no mechanism by which uh, the Australian people can actually appoint people to those positions it is a government uh, uh, prerogative. It's a little bit like a royal prerogative. So let's not forget that we live in Australia, not the United States of America, as some people think we do these days, and they're more interested in what's happening with the presidential and the uh, Senate and Congress election in the United States of America, and they seem to be interested in what's happening in this country today. Let's not forget that the Morrison government will be appointing two conservative reactionary judges to the High Court, in the next few weeks, which have a profound impact on the way the Constitution is interpreted. Not that you and I will have the finances to ever launch a, a, a high court challenge. Those things basically are, are the plaything of the rich and powerful. Then we've got economic. Are there any economic protections for Australians under the current constitutional arrangements? And the fact is there aren't. 
Now, a lot of people think they're shareholders. You know, a lot of Australians think they're shareholders, not in terms of their superannuation fund, but they think they're shareholders in terms of their ownership of the NBN, Australia Post, uh, not that there's much left that hasn't been privatised. They think they're owners or ASIC and the list goes on and on. The fact is that these institutions, including Australian Broadcasting Corporations, are basically owned by the government of the day. You're not a shareholder. Your taxpayers' money may have been used to build up these organisations, but the government of the day can privatise any state-owned enterprise at any time they like if they have a majority in both houses of parliament. And we've seen it over and over again, and when both major political parties follow the same neoliberal agenda, the same privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, and to a lesser degree, the deregulation agenda, what we see is the sale at giveaway prices, bargain basement prices, fire sale prices, of important institutions and assets which provide essential services to all Australians. Because we do live on a continent. And what we have seen uh, uh, consistently is how these assets are sold by the government of the day. So you are not a shareholder to Australia Post. You are not a shareholder to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You are not a shareholder of the MBN, and you are not a shareholder of the Future Fund. These are all institutions and the Snowy Mountain Scheme, the Snowy Mountain Hydroelectricity Scheme. You are basically an observer. The only way that you would be a shareholder if the, if the ownership was incorporated in the Australian Constitution, if the ownership of public assets was incorporated in the Australian Constitution, and once again, we have constitutional mayhem in this country because there is no individual protection for the individual against the arbitrary exercise of state power. There is no judicial protection and no mechanism by which you can actually affect judicial change. There is no economic protection. And to make matters worse, it is almost impossible to change the Australian Constitution, not because people vote against against uh, the issues that are put up in a referendum. Most people vote against the issues that are put up in a referendum because they tend to centralise the power of the state at the expense of the individual and communities. It's only a majority, it's only government that has a majority in both houses of parliament can put a question to the Australian people in the Australian country. There is no citizens-initiated referendum mechanism by which Parliament can be bypassed and the citizens themselves can put up important questions to debate it and uh, voted on by the Australian people. So we have constitutional mayhem in this country and it continues to have a significant impact on the way we live and survive. Now, getting back to the... The so-called organisations and institutions which are owned by the Australian government, uh, the Snowy Hydroelectric Scheme, the NBM, Australia Post, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the Future Fund, they're the only five major uh, institutions which are still in government hands. Everything else has been uh, sold off. 
what the government has done and continues to do and what both major parties have done is change these institutions not into organisations which serve the people but institutions which have take on a corporate dimension. And the shenanigans we've seen at Australia Post and ASIC clearly highlight how the corporatisation disease has been allowed to flourish in these institutions and how the boards of these institutions, like the judicial appointments which are made, are basically made on ideological grounds. And we see consistently board members who are appointed to these institutions reflect the ideological concerns of the ruling party. So no wonder we have state enterprises which are funded by the taxpayer, which give extraordinary amount of uh, pro uh, return to individuals who hold senior positions in these organisations, as we saw with Australia Post and ASIC. I find it quite ludicrous that ASIC is willing, which is a government organisation, is willing to pay over $115,000 for tax advice, you know, for their CEO. It's quite extraordinary. But again, we have this virus, this corporate virus, this neoliberal virus, which has now ensnared every aspect of our lives. It's taken over the public sector, not just in terms of assets which are owned, but in terms of the organisations which provide services, whether it's Centrelink at a national level, whether it's a state health department, as we saw in Victoria, as we saw disaster after disaster unfold, which led to the second wave of COVID-19 in the state. And these disasters occurred because basically state institutions have now become little more than organisations which uh, give contracts out to private organisations to carry out uh, services which should be carried out by the state itself. And we see what happens when you put for-profit organisations in those positions and how you know corners are cut in order to maximise profits. So if you think you're a shareholder of this great country, if you think you are a shareholder of any state-owned enterprises, if you think you have any judicial, economic or const economic or individual protections under our constitutional arrangements, think again and think again long and hard because basically we're living in a society whose direction continues to be um, created by that small section of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can access this uh, podcast. As I said before, we're broadcasting outside the studios of Community Radio 3CR. We will be back in the studios next week and hopefully the sound quality will be uh, much, much better than over the last few months. Let's move on. Corporate welfare. My favourites, well, it's not my favourite subjects, one of my favourite subjects. I just, uh, I think last week or the week, I think it was the week before I talked about the uh, Murdoch Empire being a uh, 
the degenerative neurological disorder that if you're exposed to it for far too long, it destroys it destroys your mind, body, and soul. Well, not only does it destroy your mind, body, and soul, it also sucks any taxes you pay at the, at the level. Now, I'll just give you a little story, doesn't it? It just highlights how corporate welfare works in this country. Now, over the last few years, uh, uh, the Matildas, which is the women, Australian Women's Soccer Club, a uh, soccer team, has been one of the. I think it's been the most successful uh, team on the international stage. I mean, uh, there aren't many Australian teams that do uh, that compete on a national level. I mean, cricket's about eleven countries. You know, the uh, rugby union. You know, and there's not many national teams. I mean, national teams that reflect what happens in this country, but there's all obviously the Australian uh, men's soccer team, the women's soccer team. So in order to get a little bit more exposure for the Matildas, what did the Commonwealth Government do? Well, it gave Foxtel. That's right. <laughs> Foxtel, part of the Mur Murdoch Empire, you know, the uh, engine behind the Trump campaign, Foxtel, you know, which is part of Fox News, you know, and the list goes on and on. $40 million to promote women's sport. But they got a second bite of the cherry. What did they do? They sold the rights to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. So a little bit of this is a case of classical case of corporate double dipping. You have government money going to a private organisation to provide coverage for women's sport, especially the uh, Matildas. And then you have the Australian Broadcasting Corporation having to buy the rights to show the Matilda soccer games on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, double-dipping at its very best. It's almost as good as the $857 million tax refund that the uh, Murdoch Empire got about five years ago uh, for a little bit of creative, clever accountancy, which the federal government didn't even bother uh, appealing against. But that's the way it is. I'm sure if you've got a tax problem, they would appeal against it very, very quickly. So if you think you live in the land of milk and honey, yes, you do, but you don't actually have much access to it. Now, I try in this program to talk about uh, issues that um, affect us. Mm. Uh, I try to keep it uh, within the national boundaries, but there are some important local issues which I'd like to touch upon. And it's quite interesting how these local issues reflect what's happened in this country. Now, currently there's a series of uh, demonstrations and strikes in Indonesia which are exceptionally important. They have an important impact, not just on the Indonesian people, but uh, the region because the Indonesian government under the newly re-elected uh, President Widodo, with uh, almost total support in the Indonesian parliament, has passed the Job Creation Bill. You like the word? The Job Creation Bill. And it's uh, the Job Creation Bill, as you know, it's there to create jobs. OK? Sounds good, the Job Creation Bill. But what the Job Creation Bill does, it reduces wages, which are very low for most Indonesian workers. 
percentage is minority groups, and there are many minority groups within the Indonesian archipelago, and it creates more environmental damage in Indonesia. If there's one country that uh, is drowning under its own uh, damage, it's uh, Indonesia. I mean, you've got forest fires one end of the season and the capital, Jakarta, sinking at the other end of the archipelago. So why? Why do you pass a bill to reduce wages, disadvantage minority groups and cause more environmental destruction? Well, all you've got to look at is who is the organisation which is supporting the bill. The World Bank, through its structural adjustment programs, has basically said to the Indonesian government that if you don't make your country more attractive to foreign investment, you will face a foreign investment strike. The Indonesian people said, well, enough is enough. And we've seen an unusual alliance which has come together to try to overturn the bill or put a sunset clause in the bill. So we've got trade unions which are, you know, not strong in Indonesia but strong enough. You've got the student movement, which has got a, you know, it's a second, uh, it's got second breath. And you've got the two major Islamic groups. And let's not forget that these uh, civil Islamic groups are exceptionally important in Indonesia in terms of their networks across the archipelago, who've come together in order to oppose the Job Creation Bill. And the Job Creation Bill is nothing more than the extension of the neoliberal agenda around the country. It's about privatised, around the world, it's about privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation and deregulation. So it's interesting that uh, our near neighbours face exactly the same threats that we face in this country and they're forced to take the direct action in order to attempt to protect their livelihoods and their ways of life. Now, the other interesting uh Two other interesting things that are happening in our region. One is the Thailand student protest, which people felt would have withered away. Now, Thailand has the luxury of being the only Asian country that was was colonised, and it had a, a kind of a god king uh, as as the head of state. And this god king, king or queen, whatever, continues to be part and parcel of Thai uh, infrastructure. Although they've got a military dictatorship, royalty does have the royal family has an exceptionally important hold on the country. The previous head of the royal family was a man who was kind of seen as like Queen Elizabeth II, you know, somebody who did the right thing by the people. But his son, who's now taken over, is uh, a little bit of a uh, Western playboy. He basically spends most of his time in Europe. He's, uh, he's holed up in Germany where he tries to, uh, you know, rule the roost. And the uh, Thai students have said enough. They said, no, we want major constitutional reform, not just constitutional reform in terms of one person, one vote, which has been taken away from us by uh, dictators in this country who are... Uh, who every time the people express their opinions and form a government which opposes the status quo and the families which exercise power in Thailand, you know, we have a military coup, a 
but we also want constitutional reform in terms of the power which is exercised by the monarchy in Indonesia. So it's quite interesting uh, that these protests have now got a momentum of their own. The uh, military authorities, although they banned protests, have now uh, backpedalled because they understand it's not just a student protest, it's a countrywide protest. So there are, again, extensive protests in Indonesia, extensive protests in Thailand. Now let's move to West Papua. West Papua continues to be one of the most most exploited places in the universe, and the Indonesian military continues to kill ad nauseum West Papuans and West Papuan activists. Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen a number of summary executions of uh, people in West Papua, activists in West Papua. Now, I'd just like to remind you that you may think it's closed down. It hasn't closed down. The West Papua Independence uh, Movement uh, Office is still open in Docklands. Uh, if you wish to get some information, you can always uh, ring 0420 Obviously, they have to uh, follow COVID-19 restrictions, but the fact that the, uh, the city is, the Melbourne city is opening up means that the office will be able to open up and uh, function on a more regular basis. So once again, I'm asking you to become a member of the West Papuan Independence Rent Collective. Now, most organisations spend 90% of their time raising money to uh, look after infrastructure and 10% of their time being activists. As far as the West Papua Independence Movement is concerned, there are a number of individuals, like myself, and I'm the convener of the West Papua Rent Collective, who are willing to put money into the bank in order to ensure the rent is paid for the West Papuan uh, activists in this country so they can actually coordinate the West Papuan independence struggle on an international stage. And that's the importance of the West Papuan office. So if you want to become a member of the Rent Collective, give me a call on 0439. 0439-395489, 0439-395489. It's a dollar a day, $365 a year. It's one of the most worthwhile investments you will make. It's the cost basically of two cappuccinos a week, and I'm sure you can give up two cappuccinos a week. It's a dollar a day. We need at least another 20 new members to keep the rent collective viable and going. The West Parkland Independence Office is now in its fifth year of existence. It continues to be an exceptionally important base via which West Parkland independence activists can coordinate and carry out their independent struggle against Indonesian authorities. And the great thing is that we support it. The Australian people support it. We pay the rent, and it makes it very difficult for governments to close the West Papua Independence Office because many West Papuans who are here are refugees or asylum seekers. Many are waiting for permanent residence. Many find themselves in that low-paid, casual, part-time work, and there's no way they could actually support such an office. So through our involvement... 
we can actually be part and parcel of that West Parkland independent struggle. And let's not forget, under the cover of COVID-19, the West Park, uh, the uh, Indonesian military authorities have been carrying out raids and summary executions of West Parkland activists around West Papua. Now, if you want to get some information regarding the West Papua office, if you go to www.dfat.federalrepublicofwestpapua.org. So that's dfat.federalrepublicofwestpapua.org. It'll give you an insight into the West Papua independence struggle, not just in West Papua, but the international support and networks that are involved in that struggle. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Don't forget that this program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. I'd like to thank all the people who access the podcast. Uh, I've got, we've got a number number of other avenues you can look at. Uh, one is the uh, anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. You can go to pipsy.net, which is public interest before corporate interest.net. You can always download an application form, become a member of public interest before corporate interest. You can go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscana or Toscana for the Public, YouTube channel, public interest before corporate interest, Instagram, P-I-B-C-I-A-U-S, and the list goes on and on and on and on. The only thing missing, obviously, in this equation is you, because it doesn't matter how boring or fascinating the analysis we provide on the Anarchist World this week is, the fact is that if you want change, it's not about listening, it's about acting. Let's move on. Let's move on. Now, a lot of people ask me, what do you think about the United States elections? And I thought as did when I broadcast next week uh, from the studios of Community Radio 3CR via the Community Radio Network to the rest of Australia. We'll have an indication of what's happened with the US presidential election, but in my opinion, more importantly, what's happened regarding the uh, Senate and uh, the Congress, the election. So what do I think? Well... This is the nation that we're supposed to worship, right? This is our template. This is the land of the brave and the free. And all I see when I follow the debate, and I try not to follow it most days, but unfortunately there is blanket coverage in this country regarding what's happening in the US of A. What I see is an amoral society, not an immoral society, but amoral. I see a society which is based on the concept of uh, private investment for private profit. I see a people that have no place, that have no interest in facts. I'm not saying all Americans don't, all people in the United States don't have an interest, but I see a significant number of people in the United States are not interested in facts. They're more interested in belief. I see a society which has got no ethical basis. I see a society with ingrained racism. I see a society which thinks a universal health scheme is some type of socialist ar ar argument, you know, socialist disaster. 
and the list goes on and on and on. And they hold themselves up as the light of the world, that this is the type of people we should emulate. So what do I think? I think it's a sideshow run by clowns. If the best they can do is have a Trump-Biden battle, you really have to ask yourself regarding the leadership in that country. The best thing that could happen, in my opinion, is a Democrat whitewash. They win the presidency, majority in the Senate, majority in the Congress. You know why? Because there are many people in the United States of America who feel the same way I do about the country they live in, and they want radical change. They want reform. They want to tackle the issues which blight them, which makes them the laughing stock. There are many decent, hard-working activists in that country who are doing everything they can to change that society despite the power and wealth which is used to keep people in a, in a, in, in a swamp they live in, the intellectual and moral swamp they live in, they are currently living in. And hopefully they will be able to influence what happens in that country and there is a new deal in that country like happened during the Roosevelt era. But again, that's hope. That's me, hope. I don't live in the United States of America. I have no influence on the electoral result. You have no influence on the electoral result. We're basically uh, voyeurs and bystanders. I mean, the main interest is in the fact they've got so much military power, but it's fascinating. So we'll see what happens. It's out of our hands. But as I said before, there are a lot of hard-working activists in that country who have fought for decades for a fairer society, a less racist community. And uh, let's hope that they will be able to um, use whatever electoral uh, result occurs in order to continue promoting those ideas. And in many regards, you know, we reflect that. The only difference, the major difference, which is beginning to dissipate and disappear in this country, is the important role that trade unions played in the creation of a society where we don't think having a universal health uh, universal health is some type of socialist plot. But if you're as old as I am and you remember when the Whitlam Labor government had introduced Medibank in 1973, every major medical organisation in this country every major corporation in this country, the Liberal National Party screamed and screamed and screamed about the fact that a universal basic, universal health insurance system, which gave all Australians access to health care, was some type of, uh, would be a disaster for the country. And obviously, if there's one legacy of the much maligned Whitlam Labor government, it's the fact that we have a universal health insurance. And although Abbott did all he could to destroy it, it was able to survive those attacks. So if you think that somehow we're different from the United States of America, think again, boys and girls. Think again. Think about about the innate racism as far as our inability to reach any agreement with this country's First Nations people. Think of how 
deregulation and corporatization and privatization, you know, and globalization have been welcomed by most Australians. That's right, most Australians. I knew I lost the battle um, about two about two years ago. I was sitting in this little cafe in uh, Coburg, and there were two gentlemen. We'll call them gentlemen in uh, you know in their little high high vis vests, and uh, they basically just come off a road project. They weren't supervisors. They weren't foremen. And as the you know the cafe was pretty crowded, I was able to listen to their little boring conversation. And these were men who were, you know, in their late forties, early fifties, and they were talking about their investments. They were talking about their investment advisors. They were talking about their superannuation. And I had to laugh to myself. I said to myself, "Well, when you've got you know ordinary workers talking like corporate CEOs, you know, you've lost the intellectual moral battle to change the society." But but where there's hope, where there's a hope, there's always a way. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, just a few little things uh, which I find exceptionally hilarious. Now, I don't know if you know there is a... During this uh, COVID-19 crisis, the federal government allowed corporations to hold Zoom AGNs, you know, virtual AGNs. Now, the great thing about having an annual general meeting, if you're a, a corporation, it always used to give people the shits because you had all these shareholder activists who'd buy a share, turn up at the AGM, which had to be held uh, in the real world, not the virtual world, and they would ask embarrassing questions and get a few headlines for 24 hours about the ins and outs and the... Uh, the affairs of a particular corporation, whether it was BHP, Rio Tinto, and the list went on and on. At an AGM in Australia, they had to face the shareholders. Well, there's currently legislation in federal parliament which will allow corporations to hold virtual AGMs in future. So what that means is that all those pesky shareholder activists that ask pesky questions regarding the role of coal, the environmental damage which is caused, the remuneration to the CEO and the major executives. You've got all these mum and dad shareholders who bring along their 10 shares to the AGM and vote it down every time. They had the pleasure of asking these unpleasant questions of these gentlemen and ladies on these boards who squirmed and sweated. Now, when the legislation is passed, and it will be passed, they'll be able to hold Zoom AGM. You'll be able to submit a question. They will be able to pick what questions they actually answer. They will be able to get their uh, minions, minions to structure a reply and you won't be able to boo at them when they, you realise what a crappy reply it is. So if you think shareholder democracy is alive and well, one, it's never been democratic because one share equals one vote 
and normally mum and dad investors may have 100 shares, 1,000 shares, and the other side has got about, you know, three or four million shares in their back pockets. They've got all these, uh, you know, proxy proxy share votes. So it will diminish the theatre, It will, but it highlights how even the fact that once a year they have to face their shareholders and have to answer questions even once a year that they're not even willing to tolerate that. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. Renting. Mm, interesting, isn't it? Everybody's talking about housing affordability and how the housing market is going to take a hit and how construction is going to kind of wind down. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, the Australian dream is dead. Dead, buried, cremated. The Australian dream is dead. Home ownership, the concept of an Australian being able to own a little pokey flat somewhere not a quarter an acre block like in the bad old days, uh, is dead and gone and will never be brought back, never be resuscitated. You won't be able to resuscitate the Australian dream and that more and more Australians find themselves renting. And it's no exaggeration to say that uh, rents are quite high that people, are, the people who are actually earning money, I'm not talking to people on Social Security benefits who are earning money, you know, paying up to 30 to 40% of their average, uh, in, of their weekly income in order to keep a roof over their head. They've got to do this for the rest of their lives. Buying houses for investors who, you know, do it through negative gearing and the list goes on and on. So the great thing about renting is the fact that there is no security. It's not just about the money that you pay, but as more and more families find themselves, families with children, find themselves in the private rental market, we have huge shifts in the type of country we are. Huge shifts. What we are seeing is insecurity at any time. A landlord or a landlady can say they need that flat or that house back for a family member and turf you out within 90 days. Most rental agreements are for 12 months. There is no such thing as a long-term rental agreement in this country. So people with children face the problem that their children do not have a stable secure environment. They're not able to go to the same schools. They're not able to have the same friends. They're not able to go have the, go to the same sporting clubs. So it has a major impact on the type of society we are. And that's why public housing has been such an important feature of the Australian dream. Because although you don't own a public home, you have security. And if you can meet that 25% of your income rental payment, you have security. Your children can live in the same place. They can go to the same schools. They can have the same friends. They can be part of the same sporting clubs, the same 
social networks. And that's the beauty of public housing. It provides secure housing for people who will never be able to enter the private rental market. But what have we seen, especially in the state of Victoria? We have seen a concerted effort to destroy, that's right, destroy the public housing sector. And nobody, and nobody has been more active in destroying the public housing sector than the Andrews-led Labor government in Victoria, where we have seen the lowest number of public housing units in the country. As a co-convener of public public housing, everybody's business... As convener of public housing, everybody's business and and co-convener of defending extend public housing, our policies are very simple, exceptionally simple. Every state earns lots of money, up to $6 billion in Victoria, through the sale of private housing, as you've got to pay stamp duty on it. If you quarantine stamp duty revenue between 5 and $6 billion a year with Victoria, which I'm familiar with, for public housing, you can spot purchase or build 20 to 25,000 housing units every year. You can house 100,000 people every year in public housing. And within a decade, you can house a million people in public housing, which provides them with secure housing. But what do we do? We give money to the private sector. We give money to the construction industry in order to have more private housing. So people are mortgaged up to their necks for a lifetime. Interest rates may be low today, but maybe they won't be low in three or four or five years' time. And all those people with half a million dollar mortgages to buy a three-bedroom home somewhere in the outer birds will find themselves in an exceptionally difficult situation because it's the same story. We need a mixed economy, and I keep talking about that, where public and private are able to compete. But what we've seen over the last 40 years, and I'll bore you with the four phrases again, deregulation, globalisation, privatisation and corporatisation, what we've seen is the death of the public sector, the withering on the vine of anything which is a public dimension to it. And that allows the private sector to grow and diminishes any competition because we don't live in a, you know, a private sector uh, heaven where you've got small businesses competing against each other on a level playing field. What we have is a playing field which is dominated by corporations whose major responsibility is to make ever-increasing profits for their major shareholders. And when you've got world-based financial institutions which put pressure on sovereign nation-states to pass legislation like the so-called Job Creation Bill in Indonesia, which disadvantage their citizens so they can get a little bit of foreign investment into that country, you can understand the situation we find ourselves in. It's quite ludicrous. Last but not least, I just something I find funny too is, look, I would be the last person on the planet 
to support the Chinese Communist Party. Let's get it right. As an anarchist, more anarchists have been killed over the past century by authoritarian communist regimes than anybody else. But I find it ludicrous when we have this avalanche of propaganda in this country which claims that the Chinese communist, no longer the Chinese government, there has been a change in language. Remember, language is everything. It's the Chinese Communist Party has been doing this and been doing that and been doing this to influence what happens in Australia. Come on. We do the same thing. The Australian government has a whole bevy of agents who do the same thing around the world. I just find it ludicrous and hypocritical that we don't say, oh, well, we do... I mean, we're the people who bugged the uh, East Timorese government cabinet room in order to get... in order to find out what they wanted to do so we'd get a better oil deal. We're the people who bugged the phone of the wife of the previous uh, Indonesian president. Come on. As if we're not involved in disinformation. We have a whole unit which is involved in disinformation. Billions of dollars going to security agencies in this country, not to protect us, but to actually, uh, you know, break down other, other, other organisations. I mean, it's ludicrous to think. But day after day, and the government guild at ABD and the corporate-owned media, we get stories about this and we get stories about that. Look, I'm sure the stories are right. But let's not forget, this is a game that we all play, that all sovereign nation states play. You've been listening to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. .au. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. Some useful sites, but before I, I do answer letters, you can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. If you want to join the West Parkland Rent Collective, give us a call on 0439 395 489. If you want to find out more about what's happening at the office of the West Parkland Movement in, in Australia, go to DFAT, D-F-A-I-T, Federal Republic of West Parkland.org. Want to join public interest before corporate interest? Download the application form from pipci.net. You can email me at info at pipci.net or anarchistage at yahoo.net. Yahoo you can also um, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, uh, Instagram, Pipsi, P-I-B-C-I-A-U-S, and another two websites you could be interested in, Public Housing Everybody's Business and uh, Public Housing Everybody and Defend and Extend Public Housing. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station next week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of 
death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist Wall this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.